Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Matsuko Sano Hewitt. I'm the co chair of the Brand Back Committee of the uh, uh, tax exempt section of the BBA. And uh, I'm happy to introduce the uh, distinguished uh, panelists and speakers this morning who graciously agreed to lead this program uh, on uh, um, uh, tax exemption for LLC and a group um, exemption ruling. Um, Sue Abbott, who leads the charitable um, LLC program, is a partner and a chair of the uh, uh, tax exempt organization group at the Goodwin Proctor. And uh, uh, Melissa um, Samson McMorrow, she is the uh, um, chair of the tax department and co chair of a nonprofit and social impact practice group of Nata, McLennan, and Fish. That's a great name, Melissa. <laughs> so, thank you again very much uh, to both of you for, uh, for agreeing to lead this uh, um, important program. So, now to you, Sue. Thank you. Thank you, Machiko, and good morning, everyone. Um, so we're going to spend the first part of the program today talking about charitable LLCs. Um, we will present, we'll have some, hopefully some time for Q&A um, before we move over to the group exemption part of the program. And so uh, the, let's see if I can make this work. Uh, hmm. There we go. Uh, so in talking about charitable LLCs, um, I thought we could start out with a little bit of history uh, in this area, and then we'll spend most of our time talking about a notice uh, that was issued a couple of years ago, and we were hoping for some more uh, uh, developments, and those developments have really been uh, sort of uh, non-developments. But to go back a little ways and talk about LLCs in the charitable context, uh, as background, Section 501c3 and the Treasury regulations they're under predate the, the era of LLCs. They predate state LLC statutes. LLCs just were not a thing uh, when, we, uh, uh, when 501c3 first came into the code. So there has long been a lot of uncertainty about how LLCs would be treated in the charitable world. And uh, we were all reasonably comfortable, I think, with the idea of using single member LLCs, uh, or at least we have been for a while, uh, given that we know that single member LLCs are disregarded entities for checked purposes, um, assuming they don't check the box to be treated as a corporation. And in 2012, the IRS gave us a notice, notice 2012-52, uh, which covered single member LLCs. And they confirmed what everyone thought, which is that those entities in the charitable world as elsewhere are disregarded entities, uh, meaning they don't have to file their own tax return. Uh, the uh, revenues, expenses, uh, activities of the single member LLC are attributed back up to the sole member. And if that sole member is a 501c3, then the charitable LLC likewise will be tax exempt. The one thing we weren't sure of before this notice um, was what happened if a donor made a gift to a single member LLC 
owned by a 501c3. Logically, it would seem that if uh, single member LLCs are disregarded entities, a donor should be able to make a gift to a single member LLC of that 501c3 and have it be treated as if it was a gift directly to the 501c3. And in fact, uh, notice 2012-52 uh, confirmed that and gave us certainty in that area, uh, which was uh, which was helpful and useful, and I think helped contribute to the use of single member 501c3s in the charitable world. Um, that is a not uncommon technique for dealing with situations where, for whatever reason, uh, whether it's a, a business purpose, a uh, a desire to isolate uh, certain uh, programs or assets that might involve some liability, uh, you know, uh, to have a particular program in a separate standalone entity, uh, that is a I, I think fairly common uh, technique in the five hundred one c three world, but. Uh, what we uh, th that notice only dealt with single member LLCs, and it took another nine years until November of 2021 before the IRS did anything involving uh, LLCs with multiple members, and that is an area um, that they had been sort of it had been on the priority guidance plan uh, for a bit. They had been working on this, and they published this notice. Uh, in 2021, which addresses requirements for multi-member LLCs uh, to qualify as a 501c3. And they set forth some scenarios and some rules, which we will talk about in a moment, for uh, when a multi-member LLC could qualify for 501c3 status. And then there were a number of areas uh, where the notice specifically requested comments. And in addition to kind of the usual general request for comments, they also specifically requested input from state charity officials on certain issues. And so we we got that notice in 2021. And in fact, a number of comments were submitted, including comments from NASCO, the, uh, I believe that's the National Association of State Charities Officials. Um, uh, and then there was some silence for a bit. And lo and behold, when the 2022 priority guidance program, uh, priority guidance plan came out, uh, the uh, item for uh, charitable LLCs was dropped from the priority guidance plan um, as something that the IRS was working on. Uh, the, and then, and so, you know, a number of, alert uh, practitioners and uh, commentators noticed, noticed that. And in November of 2022, somebody asked a question uh, at a conference at which the IRS was presenting. And somebody from the Office of Associate Chief Counsel said that, uh, well, notice 2021-56 contains the circumstances under which we believe an LLC would qualify for exemption. And the and uh, that person said that the IRS doesn't have any plans for further guidance, which is a little mystifying given all those comments that they requested. Um, but that's where we are at the moment. And uh, therefore, um, you know, it does look like the IRS is taking the position 
that in order for an LLC with multiple members to qualify as a 501c3, it must comply with all of the requirements that are set forth in the notice to qualify for exemption. And I think that was news to a lot of people. And you know, one of the concerns is that there are certain requirements in the notice. And there, I mean, to a, to a certain degree, I think they're more sort of um, procedural and administrative than, than substantive. But there are requirements in there that um, uh, I don't think anybody was aware were a requirement until this notice came out. Uh, and so the notice is definitely something to be aware of if you are working with multi-member LLCs that might want to qualify as a 501c3. Um, the notice does say that the notice doesn't affect the status of organizations, um, LLCs that had already been recognized as 501c3s. So if you have clients with LLCs that do not comply with all of the requirements in the notice about things that have to be included in the organizational documents and so forth, um, as long as that LLC was already ruled to be a 501c3, that uh, organization should be safe. Uh, but going forward, we have these new sets of rules that we need to think about. Um, and so let's talk in a little more detail about Notice 2021-56. Um, this notice sets out the prior standards that an LLC had to meet to receive a 501c3 determination letter. It notes that historically, uh, the IRS required that all members of an LLC be either 501c3s or governmental units or wholly owned instrumentalities of a state or political uh, subdivision of a governmental unit in order for the LLC to qualify as a 501c3. And that uh, requirement has been uh, carried over into the, um, uh, the requirements of this notice, um, at least as far as it goes. And the... Notice um, does also discuss some uh, some background, and it notes that Treasury and the IRS reviewed state LLC laws and the ways in which they differ from state laws on nonprofit corporations and charitable trusts uh, in the context of thinking about when an LLC can qualify as a 501c3. And they noted that there are a few states out there where the state LLC laws may actually not allow an LLC to be organized and operated for charitable purposes. Um, so if you are in one of those states uh, that, you know, you, you might need to look elsewhere um, to create an LLC that would qualify as a 501c3. Um, more importantly, they also noted that in most states, LLC laws include default provisions that are just not consistent with the requirements of 501c3 and in particular, the main area of concern, it obviously, would be economic rights for the members. Uh, those uh, economic rights that members would have by default under state law um, could well be problematic if you have an LLC that wants to be a 501c3 but has members which are individuals or other private shareholders um, uh, uh, or private members. The Notice, as I said, then went on to um, request comments in a number of specific areas, and many of those are related to whether and how LLCs that have non-exempt members could in fact qualify as 501c3s. 
Um, and so they were looking for input, um, and again, particularly from state charity officials as to what the state charity officials might want to see in terms of requirements um, that would uh, you know, keep the world of 501c3s consistent. Um, and then the notice goes into the specific requirements um, of uh, under current law where uh, the, the requirements that an LLC needs to meet for the IRS to rule that it is a 501c3. And they are contained in two sections of the notice. Section 3.02 sets forth some requirements for the organizational documents. And section 3.02 says that both the Articles of Organization and the Operating Agreement for the LLC both have to include these requirements. So uh, not enough that you have it in your Operating Agreement if you don't also have it in the Articles of Organization, there is going to be a problem. Um, and the, the provisions that the documents have to include, there are four of them. The first is a requirement that each member must be a 501c3 organization or a governmental unit or a wholly owned um, uh, uh, subdivision instrumentality of the governmental unit. That's not a particular surprise. I don't think it's consistent with what the IRS has previously required in the area of charitable LLCs. The documents also have to include a, quote, acceptable contingency plan for what happens if you have a member that ceases to be so qualified. Um, so if you have a member that loses its 501c3 status for whatever reason, you have to have provisions in your documents for what happens in that case. And the example that the IRS threw out in the notice was a suspension of membership until the member regains 501c3 status. Um, the notice has to uh, include express charitable purpose and charitable dissolution provisions. Those are familiar to us, right? That's what we put in our nonprofit corporation documents, um, but we would need to have them here as, uh, a, and again, in both the articles and the operating agreement, uh, just as we would have them you know, usually in the articles for a nonprofit corporation. Uh, and uh, we also have to have those private foundation savings clauses uh, that are required under 508E1. We are used to having those in our nonprofit corporations. We would need them here as well. So those are the four requirements uh, for the organizational documents. And then section 3.03 also contains a requirement that an LLC has to represent that all of the provisions of the articles and the operating agreement are consistent with applicable state LLC law and are legally enforceable. So that presumably is going to be one of those penalties of perjury statements that you would have to sign in the context uh, or your client would have to sign in the context of uh, a, a multi-member LLC applying for 501c3 status. Uh, the notice does say that if it is not possible to uh, require to, to include all of those four uh, required provisions uh, from section 3.02 in the articles of organization, maybe your state for whatever reason does not permit that type of provision to be in the articles that get filed with the state. 
then, then in that case, the requirements are deemed to be satisfied if the operating agreement includes the charitable provisions and none of the governing documents include inconsistent provisions. So in that case, you may not need to have everything in both places, um, but that only applies if your state law would um, you know, otherwise prohibit that from being included in your articles. Um, so that's kind of an overview of the charitable LLC world. Um, I, I will add that uh, there, as I said, there were quite a number of comments submitted, including comments from NASCO. And the general theme of the NASCO comments was that they, um, if the IRS does move in the direction of uh, of permitting 501c3 status for LLCs that have both exempt and non-exempt members, that they believe that that should only be done if there are sufficient um, safeguards that uh, would ensure that charitable LLCs are treated consistently with other types of charitable organizations. Um, and in particular, um, they would want charitable LLCs to have the same kinds of notice uh, provisions for uh, uh, you know, when uh, the state charity officials, um, in our case, the charities division of the AG's office would have to be brought in, um, you know, would have to be notified things, presumably like, uh, you know, dissolution and sale of substantially all of the assets and all those things, again, that we're used to dealing with in the nonprofit corporation world, um, they would want consistency. And then, uh, you know, obviously there would also need to be um, uh, careful attention paid to how to deal with the default economic rights for members under state law. And, uh, you know, NASCO noted that they believe that, uh, uh, you know, that it, this really should only be multi-members uh, LLCs should only be permitted in cases where state law permits LLCs to have members um, that don't have financial interests um, and allows for modification of certain other default provisions, um, things like statutory fiduciary duties to non-members, um, uh, or members without financial interests and compliance with um, the organizational and operation requir operational requirements of 501c3s. Again, not um, particularly surprising, but the uh, it, you know clearly there would be some issues to be worked out there. Um, so with that, I see we have one question um, in Q&A. Um, somebody has asked, in deciding on state of formation for the LLC, do you have a preference between Massachusetts and Delaware or another state? Um, so I would say that I, I have used both. Um, and it, as in, uh, you know, the the question about where you would incorporate a nonprofit organization. Um, there are pros and cons to both. Uh, you know, Delaware certainly has very well developed LLC law and um, you know and and flexible and sophisticated provisions. Uh, Massachusetts, uh, you know, I've, I've used Massachusetts LLCs where there's um, kind of an optical uh, reason for doing that for whatever reason. 
um, the organization uh, you know prefers to keep that tie to Massachusetts. Uh, I will also say, um, and I'd be curious to hear from uh, Melissa and Machiko on this also, we have clients that use single member LLCs quite a bit um, and for a variety of reasons, as I noted early on. Um, I personally have not ever applied for 501c3 status for an LLC that includes multiple members, both um, you know, charities and non-charities or even all charities. Uh, so I, you know, in that sense, I'm I don't know that it's a hugely common uh, common practice. Um, certainly, there are cases where it might make sense where you have some sort of joint venture going on with multiple charities involved, and they might want a formal vehicle for doing that. An LLC is a nice and flexible way of doing that. Um, but I don't know that that's that it's a hugely uh, common practice. But I'd be curious, again, to hear from Melissa or Machiko what you've seen in that area. Yeah, I would, I would, I'll, I'll go in, in reverse. I would say that, um, I think there has to be a compelling use reason to use the LLC in a, in a, you know, in a multi-member situation. And, you know, I, I, I found that oftentimes I can make it work with, without going through that structure because it does take a fair amount of education. Um, and, and, and sometimes, little quirky things that you find along the way. Um, but um, I have done an exemption really for a, a single uh, uh, member LLC that uh, elected, you know, to go through the, the exemption process. And, and that was pretty seamless, but that's, you know, just one member. Um, I love them. I, I like, I throw them out, single member LLCs out as ideas a lot. Um, you know, you don't have to go through a separate um 1023 process um it's it's a way to segregate a project um a little bit more formally than you know i you know with the use of dbas i think i think there's a lot of versatility asset protection when you're doing complex asset gift acceptance um so i i think they're very versatile in the day-to-day -day use but i do think once you get into that more complicated world um my test is, you know, is there a compelling reason to go through this? Because people don't live these day in and day out. So it does, um, when you live with them on an ongoing basis, it's not as um, familiar. Yeah, agreed. Um, the other thing, I, oh, Machiko? I'm sorry. So I just agree with Melissa. So we tend to dissuade our clients from forming a multiple if they ever think about it. And then we try to um, think about other options without going that way. So um, having said that, the, uh, at, uh, uh, previously at the Lawyers Greenhouse, that the, uh, um, I understand that the uh, um, affordable housing industry, they tend to use a lot of um, multiple member LLC for the uh, uh, nonprofit development project. And I never really did that myself, of course, but the, uh, um, perhaps that the, if somebody in the audience, I don't know that the, if some like Teresa is in the audience, maybe they could talk about that. Uh, perhaps is Teresa here? 
guess not. I don't know if the participants are able to speak, but if anybody has any feedback, um, feel free to type it into the Q&A and we can share. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. Yeah. And I would also just note that in the single member LLC context, um, like Melissa, we use that a lot. Um, but a couple of things to be aware of there. Um, one is um, to be careful about putting real estate into single member LLCs um, if property tax exemption is a concern. Yeah, um, yeah. Since since at least in Massachusetts, uh, the Massachusetts will not disregard the LLC for property tax purposes. So that can be an issue. Um, the other thing I would say that we have found um, is that despite the fact that we have this lovely notice from 2012 from the IRS that says that it's possible to, you know, for a donor to give directly to the single member LLC, and get their charitable deduction, just as if they were giving to the 501c3, that's the sole member. We have had some clients who have had um, some bumps in the road with that, where they have had donors who are sophisticated enough to go look in the IRS listing um, for tax-exempt status of the organization. And uh, of course, they don't find the single-member LLC there because the single-member LLC doesn't have its own tax-exempt status unless, as in Melissa's case, it's gone in and independently applied for that. And so there's a bit of a process to go through in communicating with donors to try and get them comfortable uh, with donations directly into the single-member LLC. And if you're going to be doing a lot of that, um, that may be an area where you would um, uh, you know, perhaps want to think about uh, doing what Melissa's client did and going in uh, for uh, a determination letter for the single member LLC. Yeah, and there's the one other thing that banks sometimes get confused, right? Right. When you right. try to open a bank account. Right. Yes. So definitely some potential um, sort of practical issues that you have to think about and potentially deal with if you're using a single member LLC. Uh, but other than that, it is a very nice, um, you know, a very nice option. And uh, I don't see any other questions that have come in. So unless anybody has further Oops, uh, one more question. Um, we have somebody asking, uh, following up on the mass real estate tax exemption comment, does anybody know whether Massachusetts will look through a single member LLC for purposes of the exemption from sales tax? I believe that it would, but I am not 100% confident of that. Uh, Melissa or Machiko, have you had to deal with that issue? Um, I've seen... Um... I don't believe that there's statutory law in it, but I've seen private letter rulings where they do look through it. Or, sorry, um, just let, letter rulings. Yeah. It would seem, in theory, that they should, um, given that it is ignored for other tax purposes. And if the single-member LLC is using the parent's EIN, I would think that would be sufficient. Um, but again, I would not swear to that. So if anybody has had um, experience with that, again, feel free to type things into the chat. Um, and... 
With that, I think it is time to turn it over to Melissa to talk about group rulings. Um, sure, thank you. And you you may not think that these topics are related just yet, um, but as Sue was talking, there, there's a couple of um, there's a couple of common themes. One is um, we need to go back on the history on this. Um, and 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 first to to set the stage with the background, and then talk about some fairly recent guidance. Um, and uh, so I will do that. I just um, I just have one um, PowerPoint slide for you that shows some key references that you um, um, let's see. that you might want to jot down. Uh, so, okay. Can people see that? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, so for a very, very long time, uh, Revenue Procedure 80-27 has been, um, you know, the, the main source of guidance for group exemption um, in, in this area. But I do want to back up and just say, um, what is a group exemption? Um, give some examples of of why you would want to use it, um, and uh, is it common? So on the is it common, apparently there are about 4,000 group exemptions uh, structures in place that cover about $440,000 $440, organizations. Um, so my my message there is don't feel bad if you've never dealt with this because um, it's a little bit of a quiet area. Um, so basically the concept of a group exemption is that you have an umbrella organization and there's two, t two key terms in the group exemption world. One is central organization, the other is subordinate organization. Um, and the theory here is you have one central organization and it has the general term is general supervision and control over a, a group of subordinate organizations that are somehow affiliated with um um with the central organization so probably the best way to to make progress in 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 this area is to just uh, give some examples um the Roman Catholic Church has a group exemption in place. Um, and so some of the, for example, some of the hospitals um, that are affiliated with the, the, the Catholic Church operate under a group exemption. Um, a common one, you know, another common one is, um, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. I believe they tend to have um, uh, their, their structures and group exemptions. Um, but basically, if you think about organizations that um, that are organized like chapters or local um, local uh, affiliates of a of a more umbrella organization, um, and so so that's that's the background for um, what are they? What is the structure? Um, when might you use it? And like I said. Um, for a very, very, very long time, Revenue Procedure 80-27 set forth the rules that you need to go through 
um, to get a group exemption. And basically under those rules, um, you needed to, the, 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 the central organization would apply to the IRS in a 1023 um, and they would largely go through a similar process but they would have um, they would have additional steps that they would need to take. And basically, um, the central organization and the subordinates um, need to have a, a, an, an a affiliation. Um, and and by way of that affiliation, the subordinate organization or organizations would need to be subject to the central organization's general supervision and control. Um, and one of the other uh, key requirements for eligibility is that the, um, the organizations need to be somehow described in Section 501C, right? So not just 501C3, but, but some organizations. Um, and one trick here was um, that all of the subordinate organizations um, must be described in the same section, subsection of 501c3, but they don't have to be described in the same section, uh, subsection as the central organization. Um, and that is the current state of the law. Um, and so once you um, and and I'm going to preview what is in notice 2020 a little bit, um, 202036 a little bit, because um, the definition of subordinate and central organization, those are, you know, put those in the category of um, not very well defined would be nice to have some more clarity on what that means. So, so it was a little bit of a facts and circumstances test. Um, as you would expect, there were some, you know, um, Exemptions if you're if you're if you're a um, a church as defined by the Internal Revenue Code, similar to what what you would think, um, and then on an ongoing basis, um, what this does is in, in it's intended to streamline um, compliance, streamline administrative work. So once the group, once the central organization gets its group exemption. That group exemption, uh, that it's a determination letter, and it applies to all of the support subordinate organizations that um, were on the application list for in the 1023. It also applies to any future subordinate organizations that subsequently join the group exemption um, family, so to speak. Um, and the, the key difference here is that that subordinate organization does not have to go through its own 1023 process um, at the front end. And in operation, that the central organization takes over the role of the IRS in monitoring whether or not that organization, that subordinate organization, continues to qualify under Section 501c3. And so there are some some you know administrative monitoring requirements that are in place there, um, as well as um, official notice requirements that need to be filed a certain number of days before the return is due. I believe it's ninety days. Um, and so so in theory, it seems to be a, a fairly um, a good tool to streamline 
compliance on the IRS end. One of the things, um, um, you know, similar to to in Sue's world, one of the um, you know practice tips I would say that that I have encountered um, is that when you have an organization that's covered under a group exemption, you you find potential funders who might get a little um, squeamish about funding them because they don't find them in um, publication, you know, you know, in the IRS data, in either of the IRS's databases. So, um, how did how does someone prove that they're um, described in five hundred one c three and exempt? Um, they have the subordinate organization has to uh, take you know, get a copy of the group exemption letter from the central organization. And then one of the requirements of the central organization is that it maintains a list of organizations that it includes as subordinate organizations in its, um, under its umbrella, and that it must maintain that list on an annual basis. Um, and, um, and so often, you know, what I recommend people do is they they get a letter from the, the central organization that attaches a copy of their list and it shows the subordinate organization on um, on that list. And that should be sufficient information. But it's, you know, if, if you've got a funder that's dealing with software that it, you know, it might create a little bit of, um, you know, checking online, it it creates a little bit extra work and, and possibly um, a little bit of doubt. Um, and so just to give you a little bit of flavor of, of what, um, what the reporting requirements are from the subordinate organization to the central organization each year, basically you need to let the um, central organization know every year whether or not you've changed your purpose, your character, or your method of operation. Um, and the um and and whether you know whether or not think about you know similar concept has anything happened that would cause the central organization to believe that its exempt status may, may not um co uh, continue to be appropriate so on the central organization side they need to maintain a list of subordinates that have changed their name subordinates that no longer are able to be included in the groups and group exemption letter either because they've ceased to exist, they've disaffiliated, or they've withdrawn their authorization. Subordinates um, to be added to the group exemption letter because they're new, um, and and that's about it. So um, you need to have contact information as well um, and. Um, basically any any or any information that would be needed to identify the organization and, and contact the organization. And that gets filed um, with the IRS. And so, you know, people may have ex their own experience with group exemptions here. Um, um, I will just say to you, and I think in my 22 years, I've done two group exemption applications. They're not, in my experience, I have not um, had a lot of experience with them, but I do see them out there. Um, you know, sometimes if you're in the the context of thinking about funding organizations, um, so so that's RevProc eighty twenty seven. 
like I said, um, we've gone along with that for, for many years. But I think what what the IRS was finding is that maybe this process isn't as efficient as we might want it to be. And maybe after uh, 40 years, maybe we should take a refresher look at it and see what's working and what's not working. Um, and that's what they did in Notice 2020-36. Um, so, in, uh, so they issued this notice and basically it, it was uh, a proposed revenue procedure to update revenue procedure 80-27. Um, but um, I have not yet seen um, a final revenue procedure issued subsequent to notice 2020-36. Um, and while, you know, they, of course, in the notice, they they were seeking comments on, um, on what they're proposing in the notice. And they also stated that while they're in the comment seeking process, they are not accepting any more um, uh, new group exemption applications. So, um, I don't know if anyone's tried, but my understanding is if you try, you won't um, you won't you know be allowed to go through the exemption approval process. So um, I want to just highlight uh, in the few minutes um, here, what is it that they're focusing on in the notice and um, what is changing? And if um, uh, and and so we can go we can go through the highlights. I'm not going to be able to touch base on on all of them, um, but I encourage you to read um, notice 2020-36. Um, back to my my PowerPoint RevPrac 8027. Um, that is the current revenue procedure. Like I've said, IRS publication 4573 just has a little bit more lay term friendly um, that I think is helpful uh, with with clients. Um, and then notice 2020-36 is the proposed um, revenue procedure, which I'm turning to now. Um, okay, so kind of main changes. One thing I mentioned is that in the existing group exemption rules, you um, really need to have one a subordinate organization, one or more. Um, and, and it's possible in operation that if you start with just one and you lose that one, it's possible that you still have this group exemption in place, but you don't have any subordinate organizations. Um, the new proposed revenue procedure in Notice 2020-36 states that um, going forward, you must have at least five subordinate organizations um, in, uh, in order to be issued a group exemption letter. Um, the other ma uh, major uh, high-level conceptual change that they're proposing is that currently a central organization can get as many um, exemption letters as it wants. So we could have multiple group exemption letters and then it could be um, it could be uh, monitoring and supervising uh, multiple groups of subordinate organizations. Um, and uh, under the proposed revenue procedure, which I don't want to focus too much on the details because I don't know how many much of these details will get 
you know, we'll make it through into the final revenue procedure. But um, under these proposed rules, each central organization may hold only one group exemption letter. Um, and I think the reason, you know, the reasoning behind these rules is is really just generally to improve transparency, to to improve efficiency, and to improve administration. And the feeling from the IRS is that there's been, um, you know, maybe some lack of compliance um, and maybe not enough oversight that they've delegated, you know, the oversight that they've delegated to these central organizations may not be happening as well as it should be happening. And if you only have uh, responsibility for one group, of subordinate organizations, you might do a better job of the monitoring um, and, and supporting. Uh, and so those are really the two um, high-level conceptual changes. Um, there is a statement in here, as, as one might expect, that to the extent these um, rules are finalized, there will be, you know, um, grandfathering rules for, um, for uh, organizations that um were in were held central um central organizations that held group exemption rollings prior to the finalization of this new um revenue procedure um so again as i mentioned at the beginning one of the um deficits so to speak of the existing uh regime is that that the, the definition of central organization and more importantly of subordinate organization is not well, is not clear. And so the revenue proposed revenue procedure tries to tighten that up. Um, and they propose to define a central organization as an organization that has one or more subordinate organizations under its general supervision of control. Um, subordinate organization is meant to mean um, a chapter, local post, or unit of a central organization. Um, it may or may not be incorporated, but it must have an organizing document. Um, and then further on the um, central organization, it clarifies that it can be described in 501c, but it also can be an instrumentality or an agency of a political um, subdivision. Uh, and then, um, it does a better job, um, because those definitions that I gave you in my view, aren't, uh, aren't yet an improvement on what we already have. Um, but it does a better job of describing what general supervision means and what control means. And again, under the proposed rules, um, a subordinate organization is subject to the central organization's general supervision if the central organization obtains annually, reviews and retains information on the subordinate organization's finances, activities, and compliance with annual filing requirements. Because note that although a subordinate organization does not have to get a 10, you know, go through the 1023 process, process it does have responsibility for filing its own returns. Um, the subordinate organization also, um, I'm sorry, the central organization also must transmit written information to the subordinate organization about the requirements to maintain tax exempt 
status under the appropriate paragraph um, of 501c3. And um, so that's the definition, that's the definition of general supervision. So, um, you know, in, basically the theme there is information flowing both ways. Control, a subordinate organization is subject to the central organization's control if the central organization, and here, here's a, 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 a big change, this was not required before, appoints a majority of the subordinate organization's officers, directors, or trustees, or a majority of the subordinate organization's officers, directors, or trustees are officers, directors, or trustees of the central organization. Um, so, so there's, again, the theme, uh, a little bit of tightening up um, the, um, the, uh, the the relate the basically the reporting and control relationship um uh so that there's a little bit more oversight and and it's easier to provide oversight um i'm going i've got a question so i'm just going to wrap up a little bit on on kind of prepared um prepared remarks and then um and then switch over to questions um but but uh, a couple of the other highlights, again, of the proposed rules, which are not yet final, um, are are fairly significant changes. Um, but um, one is, if you mentioned before, if you remember, I mentioned before, currently the central organization and the subordinate organization do not have to be described in the same subparagraph of Section 501C. Um, under this proposed revenue procedure, the um, the the controlling the the central organization and the subordinate organization need to be described in the same subsection of five hundred one c three. The subordinate organizations, um, if this is finalized, are also will also be subject to um, uh, a requirement that does not currently exist that. Um, that that they must have the same foundation classification. There are there are exceptions, and and there's there are a lot of detailed exceptions that that generally make sense. But you know, so if you're a if you're a um, type one supporting organization, all the subordinate subordinate organizations need to be type one support uh, supporting organizations, um, or you know, again, five hundred nine a one or five hundred nine a two. If you're in the 50981 category, it can be a hospital and a school. You know, it doesn't have to be the same sub sub classification, but um, there's they're they're imposing a, a little bit more of a uniformity requirement on um, the tax status, particularly the foundation classification of subordinate organizations. It's also imposing a new requirement that there needs to be similar primary purposes of the um of the subordinate organization. Um, and they're finally uh, uh, putting to use these NTEE codes and they say that they must be um, described in the same NTEE codes. So um, people may be paying more attention to those than, than I typically do. Um, and then here's an interesting requirement um, that all subordinate organizations must adopt a uniform governing instrument um and um and that that the ones that are submitted must be actual 
actual governing instruments, not just form governing instruments that that um, that are suggested. So so that is a change. Um, but but as you can see, the theme here is um, make sure that you have enough subordinate organization to make this group exemption worthwhile worth your while. Um, and um, have some more uniform uniformity in who the subordinate organizations are and and how they're described in the tax code, presumably so that it's easier to monitor um, and then impose some uniformity um, in in the um, in the governing documents of the subordinate organizations. Um, all right, so I'll just switch to the questions. We only have a few minutes left. Um, so here's the question. When a subordinate organization is dissolving, I believe it will need to do a final 990 and also let the central org know so that they're removed from the sub subordinate org list. Um, do you agree that it should take both steps? I do. Um, and also, I believe all subordinates need to have the same fiscal year end as the central org. Um, and this has been an issue I've uh, you know, encountered. So, uh, um, so those are both good points. Um, again, speaking to the uniformity um, requirements. Yep. And then my my other question is: shouldn't these um, shouldn't these be regulations um, and not revenue procedure? That's a good question. Um, that that may be so. Um, I I think I think I did read that. Um, and and this I this I'm not completely certain on, but I think I did read in some of the preamble, you know, preparatory material that they are also looking at the regulations. Um, the intent of this is to update Revenue Procedure eighty twenty seven, which people have been following for a while. Um, but it's a good point to also look at the regs. And just on back on the termination section, um, you know, the, the new revenue procedure, of course, goes through rules for when when you're um what to do when you terminate. And it also, you know, and, and there, as you might suspect, it's the voluntary or forced involuntary termination. And it also does some updating um, and addresses how how um, uh, what the rules are if you're if you're a subordinate organization and you're subject to laws that have been passed subsequent to Revenue Procedure eighty twenty seven, such as the automatic revocation rules for failure to file a return, um, as well as the notice requirements um, that five hundred one c fours are now. Um, subject to and um you know as you might suspect if you're automatically terminated um you're no longer eligible to take advantage of the group exemption and you have to get re reinstated before you can rejoin um and then on the notice requirement under 501c4 i think i think that the item of note under that um is that it is possible for the central organization to provide that notice on behalf of the um subordinate organization. Um, so uh, if if this is an area that you practice in and you haven't already, I would encourage you to submit comments um, um, to the extent you think they're needed. 
Um, and I think as a general matter, um, some of these, um, I, I see I see some of these rules as, as improvement, um, even maybe the tight, the ones that tighten up the the criteria, um, because I do think it's it's um, an area where uh, um, you know as time where where you know you can have traps for the unwary or um, that there's the opportunity for things to let be let slide. So um, so that's what I had. Great, thank you very much, Marisa, and thank you, Sue. Um, if you, we don't have any other questions, this is, concludes the uh, program this morning. And I thank you both again very much for the informative sessions on uh, rather esoteric topics, but it's really important topics and then people really need to know about this. Thank you. Thank you.